All right, 1 Kings chapter 20. We saw last week at the end of chapter 19 that Elijah's just getting back onto the scene in Israel, but contrary to Elijah's charge that he's the only one left, God has still been working in Elijah's absence. When Ben-Hadad leads a coalition of kings to invade Israel, an unnamed prophet approaches Ahab with a message from the Lord, and Ahab listens, as long as God's instructions go along with his own desires. God's grace is so amazing, it's willing to pardon the worst sins that we commit against him. But experiencing that grace requires us to recognize something and it's that I'm not the Lord, He is. So, chapter 20, we'll pick it up in verse 13. It says, And behold, there came a prophet unto Ahab, king of Israel, saying, Thus says the Lord, Have you seen all this great multitude? Behold, I will deliver it into your hand this day, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And Ahab said, By whom? And he said, Thus says the Lord, even by the young men of the princes of the provinces. And then he said, Well, who shall order the battle? And he answered, You. And so then he, Ahab, numbered the young men of the princes of the provinces, and they were 232. And after them he numbered all the people, even all the children of Israel, being 7,000, and they went out at noon. I love this, that the prophet comes to him, Ahab, and says, have you seen all this great multitude? (laughs) I'm sure Ahab had more than seen. You know, he'd been deliberating the last few days. He'd probably gone out to the walls and looked at that massive army multiple times. He probably studied and postulated, and even now was preparing on how to deal with them since he did not accept Ben-Hadad's terms of surrender. But you know, that's how we tend to be with problems, isn't it? We look at it from every angle, trying to figure out what it is we're supposed to do, or we, we look at it and we figure we know what we need to do. So I do find it interesting that the Lord and our enemies sometimes say things that sound similar, yet they couldn't be more different. See, the enemy demands, look at this. Look at this thing. You can't do this. There's, there's not even a way for God to do this. You're, gonna, you're going down for sure this time. And then when we begin to hope or reach for the Lord, He keeps demanding, look at how big the problem is. Look at the problem. It's not just going to go away. Look at how unassailable it is. Look at the image of hopelessness. Or sometimes the enemy comes to us and he says, look at that. That's, that's an easy solution. You just need to lie to your wife about X, Y, Z and, and do this shady thing over here and no one will be the wiser and everything will work out better that way. And then if we begin to respond to the conviction of the Lord, he demands even louder. No, look at this thing. Take a good hard look. If you don't deal with it the way I'm telling you, the way you've you know, figured out you need to deal with it, your window will close and bad things will happen. The Lord, on the other hand, says to Ahab, look at that big army out there. But the Lord's saying that because he wants Ahab to understand it's nothing to me, and I'm offering to rescue you. I was talking to the kids in the car on the way home from church this morning, you know, hey, what'd you learn about today? And one of, the, you know, one of them talked about how, you know, the woman touched the Jesus's garment, you know, and it was healed, and, you know, she had tried everything else, and none of it worked, and I, I'm all too much like that woman. Try everything else, and if I'm like, oh yes, nothing worked, I'll try the Lord. I had a, I had a, um, I had a trial in my life. It was a four-wheeled vehicle called a lawnmower, <clears throat> and it was, it was just always a problem. And finances really weren't there to get a new one many years ago. And so every time I'd go out there, and then the same type of problem would happen, and have to pull it apart and put it back together. And sometimes it wouldn't work. And you know, every time the Lord would be like, well, why don't you pray first? Like, why don't you come talk to me about it first? I'm not saying don't pull it apart and work on it, but how come it's last? Like when you're so frustrated and finally because you're so frustrated you can actually hear my voice. The Lord says, look at how big that army is, Ahab. Nothing to me. And here's my offer. I'm going to rescue you from it. You see, trusting the Lord isn't about burying your head in the sand. It's not about pretending the problem isn't difficult. Trusting the Lord is about acknowledging Him. That's what the Scripture says. Trust the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways, what? Acknowledge Him. I remember, it's funny, we say phrases sometimes, we don't really, at least I don't really know what they mean, and you think about it, and you're like, what does that mean? Acknowledge Him. 
Then you start looking up some things and you start thinking about it, pondering it, and you're like, okay, if I acknowledge somebody, I'm recognizing their ability. I'm recognizing their capability. If I acknowledge someone, I'm recognizing their presence. Hey, it's you. I'm recognizing that they're there. And also when I acknowledge somebody, there's the, the concept and the idea that I'm inviting them in, you know, into what's going on. Hey, you, you know, you don't be over there. Come over here. If we're going to trust the Lord with our heart and not lean on our understanding, we have to acknowledge Him in everything that we do. Well, Lord, what's, what do you want to do here? Well, I mean, I, I've looked at it, but the truth is, Lord, I need, I need you to look at the problem. Or I, need you to, I need to find out what you want me to do with this. Trusting the Lord means taking Him into my accounting of the problem, acknowledging that the problem's only solution, even if He's going to use me, the only solution, though, is Him because nothing is too difficult for Him. It's about acknowledging His promises and trusting in Him to be faithful rather than my own abilities to work the problem out with the least amount of negatives. Well, Ahab's told by the Lord, I will deliver it into your hand this day, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Here's my offer, Ahab. No strings attached. I mean, that's the truth, right? I will do this. He didn't say, I will do this if you do this. He says, this is what I'm going to do for you, Ahab. No strings attached. Ahab simply needs to receive God's gracious offer. Now, we, we see that and we think, man, why would God do that for a man who doesn't believe? Or, or why do this for a man who didn't even ask for God's help? I mean, it's not like he was calling for prophets. Why do this for the man who's the worst king Israel's ever had? The Lord tells him, you shall know that I am the Lord. God wants Ahab, Ahab, to know that he is the Lord. What does it mean that he's the Lord? Well, that word Lord is his name Jehovah. You know, he's, he's, he's a different God. He's not like the idols. He's the living God. He's the one who becomes to his people what his people need him to be. He's the real God, the one that can truly help, the one that is the creator. And so God reaches out to this idolatrous man and he says, I'm doing this because I want you to know who I am, what I'm like. Do you realize how vast God's love is? Like I read that, I'm like, that is so encouraging to me. Because while I've got just as many issues as Ahab, surely, I'm not someone who's not following the Lord. So if he can love a guy like Ahab, then surely he can love a guy like me and you, right? Do you realize how vast God's love is, how good he is, how kind he is, and how gracious he is? I love the old hymn, Wonderful Grace of Jesus. That first chorus always gets me. It's his wonderful grace of Jesus, greater than all my sin. How shall my tongue describe it? Where shall its praise begin? Taking away my burden, setting my spirit free, for the wonderful grace of Jesus reaches me. And I came from an old-style church when I first got saved, and so all the men at the end, after you say, even me, they all go, even me. I like that because there was a reminder in that, even me. It's the wonderful grace of Jesus. It reaches all the way down to even me. Studying Ahab can be like wading through a tar pit of stubbornness, selfishness, pride, and wickedness, and maybe it's not nice to say, but stupidity. But it's also a glorious study in the love and the grace of God. God reaches out to this wicked man time and time and time again. His heart is toward this pride-filled man every step that Ahab takes towards his eventual judgment. Every step. And, and so I, I have to say that because of Ahab's story in Scripture, no amount of human reasoning, no one's systematic theology will ever convince me that God doesn't love the lost. Just sorry. Just, I don't care how you logic it out or how you fits into your systematic theology. You will never, ever convince me when I look at God's treatment of Ahab because we know that Ahab's lost. We know he's lost. No one will ever convince me that God would even want the worst maniac to perish in hell for all eternity. And so therefore, those who spend eternity separated from God are there by their own stubborn choice not because it's what God wanted. If God's grace reached out to Ahab, then I can know for sure it reaches out to me. 
And so do you realize how vast God's wonderful love is for you, how kind and how gracious and good he is to you? And are you receiving it? Well, Ahab accepts God's gracious offer of rescue, and he says to him in verse 14, the prophet, he says, by whom? How's this going to work, Lord? What's the plan? (laughs) Ahab decides to accept God's help, and he asks the prophet who God will use to defeat Ben-Hadad's army. What's the plan for Syria Bowl 1? Wow, that was a bad joke, huh? (laughs) Super Bowl today, right? Like I'm not getting wrong? All right, don't ever use that one again. What's the plan? By whom, Lord? And I love the prophet. The prophet says, thus saith the Lord. Here's God's instructions. It's his, his words. This is God's help. These are God's instructions from the start to the finish. I love this because the prophet is, is showing Ahab how a relationship with God works. And what's cool about this is Ahab's going to see that a relationship with God works. Here's how it works, Ahab. The Lord's the king. He's in charge, and you come to him. You look to him. He leads you and guides you, and he provides for you and takes care of you. Okay. Okay, what do we do? Well, here's the instructions. Follow him. Ahab, he's telling him, this is how it works, Ahab. It's not like Baal. It's not like you go down to the local temple and you put your little fruit bowl in front of the idol and you'd be like, all right, eat up, please bring rain. No. Like every day, no matter what, you just go right to the Lord and say, what's what's the plan? What do you want me to do? You're the king. I want to follow your lead. Show me what to do. And it works, Ahab. That way works. It's way better than doing things your way, Ahab. He says to him, he says, even by the young men of the princes of the provinces. The young men here means the servants or the retainers of these princes of the tax districts. Remember when Solomon uh, divided the nation into districts for taxing purposes? Well, these princes, they're the, they're the ones who are like the Israeli IRS, okay? They're like the, the big higher-ups, okay? But these young men, these retainers, these were the men appointed by the Israeli IRS leadership to enforce the tax collection. In other words, these guys have, have jobs that are not for the weak in body or the faint of heart, all right? He says, they're they're the ones who are going to lead the battle, the Lord says. And then Ahab asks the question, who shall order the battle? It sounds like who's going to lead the charge, but the word order here, it means who's going to join the battle. What Ahab's asking is, do we wait for them to attack us, or do we join battle with them? Do we, the word order here means to bind or join together. So do you want us to wait for them to attack, or do we sally forth out of the city and bring the, the battle to them? And God says, you. You're going to come out of your walls, and you're going to start the the battle. God says, I want you to take your smaller force, leave the safety of the walls, and attack this larger force. Ahab's not quite like a King Theoden at Helm's Deep, but he does do what God says. I don't imagine it was quite like that charge, but he does decide to trust the Lord. And so verse 15, he numbers the young men of the princes of the provinces. You've got 232 of these guys. All right, you're you're leading this. You're leading. You're the head of the spear. You're You're the tip of the arrow. And after them, he numbered all the people, even all the children of Israel, being 7,000. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us how big Ben-Hadad's army is, but I'm guessing 7,232 is going to end up being very outnumbered. In fact, it's such a small force that Ben-Hadad assumes it's a negotiating party. Look at verse 16. They go out at noon, so the gates open to the city, and they come out. But Ben-Hadad was drinking himself drunk in the pavilions, he and the kings, the 32 kings that helped him. And the young men of the prince of the provinces went out first, and Ben-Hadad sent out, and they told him, saying, there are men come out of Samaria. Now, I don't know if it's necessary just a party atmosphere for Ben-Hadad. Sometimes soldiers back then would drink before battle to lift their spirits or to give themselves extra courage because, I mean, that's what happens when you get inebriated. Your senses, normal senses, become dulled, and so you can, sometimes people act a lot different than they maybe they normally would. So they would do that sometimes to somehow give them extra courage for the fight. Sometimes men did do it because they were overconfident and they were, you know, celebrating beforehand. Ben-Hadad and these other leaders do strike me as probably being the overconfident type, but whatever they're drinking themselves drunk for, their little party gets interrupted. Because as these guys come out, at the same time, it says Ben-Hadad sent out. So this, the first people to come out of Samaria are just these 232 guys. 
And it just so happened at the same time that Ben-Hadad sent a messenger. The word sent out means to dispatch. He sent a messenger to find out how things were going. Now, I don't know what he wants to find out. The last we had read, he had told his soldiers to man their battle stations, but we don't have any record of him giving the command to start the attack yet. So again, I don't know what he wants to know. I'm like, I don't know if he's asking, is it ready? Like, are you ready to roll? I don't know. But the information he gets is not what he was looking for. He, sa- here is, he says, somebody's coming out of, out of the city. And so verse 18, he said to them, whether they become out for peace, take them alive, or whether they become out for war, take them alive. So his plan is capture them. I don't kill them. Uh, you know, whatever they're out there for, just capture them. And so verse 19, it says, these young men of the princes of the provinces came out of the city and the army which followed them. So by the time he sends out this contingent to capture these guys, the rest of the army is coming out of the city. And verse 20 tells us, they slew everyone his man, and the Syrians fled, and Israel pursued them. And Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, escaped on a horse with the horsemen. And the king of Israel went out and smote the horses and chariots and slew the Syrians with a great slaughter. So the very first Syria bull was not close. Okay, that was better. Or you're just humoring me. Now, I've never been a soldier. I've been in positions where I had to confront someone in a semi- hostile situation, and that's, you're always kind of on alert when you do that. Your, your senses are kind of heightened. So I'm sure the Syrian soldiers sent to capture these guys are on their guard, but their orders are not to kill even if things go bad, even if they're coming out to fight, which puts you at a disadvantage. So when the rest of the army, they exit the city next, everything goes from worse to bad, because whatever, however many people come out to capture these guys, they get slaughtered, and then the rest of the army sees that, and then they see the, the Israeli army coming out of the city to attack, and they just bolt. They just bolt. And so already, the, I mean, the battle's pretty much over. So the, then Ahab comes out, and he's just they're killing people left and right. I mean, it's an absolute uh, butcher's field out there where just the Syrians absolutely get uh, slaughtered, destroyed. Every last soldier that was sent to capture these guys was killed, which sent the rest of the army into a panic. And so God does exactly what he said he would do. I'm going to rescue from them. doesn't matter how much they are. And so I love this because it almost like the prophet could say, see, Ahab, this works. It works. Trust the Lord. Which brings up a, a really good question. Do you believe that trusting God's instructions work? Me and Bev had a conversation the other day, and we're talking about, like, what do we think about the power of God's Word? Like, do we believe that it is capable to meet whatever our need is? Do we believe it when Peter says, you know, that all, we have all things that pertain to life and godliness and the knowledge of Him? You know, we looked at each other with big grins. We're like, we do. Like, that's why we, we say the things we do. It's why we counsel the way we do. It's why we encourage people to make certain choices, like this prophet is encouraging Ahab. We do believe that. I believe with all my heart. You know, it's one thing to say, I believe this is the Word of God. It's another thing to go, I believe these instructions work. Because there will be times when following God's instructions will seem very counter to your intuition. This will be very counter to common sense. I've had times when, you know, people will come to me, and they don't say this, but what they're communicating to you is, Pastor Will, the clock's ticking. It's ticking. Like, I got to do something. And, and I've just always been of the belief that that's, if it's not God's clock, then I don't care what it's ticking. I just don't care because I don't believe that God operates in the same deadlines that we do. Or maybe I should say this way. That I don't believe God operates in the same deadlines that others impose upon us. I just don't. And so when, I've, when I kind of sense pressure from the Lord, like this is, maybe this is just some advice on just from one brother to another, you know, brother, sister in Christ. But when I felt pressure to act, I tend to like step, take a big step back because God just doesn't work that way. Like it's interesting, this guy doesn't come to Ab and he's like, Ab. no, he's like, hey, take a look at the army. Ab's probably like, I don't want to look at the army. <laughs> but looking at the army for two days, it's bad. Say, no, the Lord's going to deliver you from all this. I think it's James that says, 
It contrasts like the peace that comes from the Lord, the wisdom that, no, it's the wisdom that comes from the Lord with the wisdom of, of the world. And it talks about the peaceable nature of God's direction and God's wisdom. You know, I mean, you may have heard that before, like, do you have peace about it? <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> well, I mean, the opposite of peace is strife, right? Contention. The word peace in the New Testament, it refers to harmony. Well, everything's discord. That's the opposite of peace. So, like, when someone asks you that question, or, or maybe, you know, when you're thinking about that, like, where's my peace at? Well, where, where, do you feel pressure? Because God doesn't work that way. Now, God directs us, and, and of course, there's the heavy hand of God when we're in sin, but the wisdom that comes from God is peaceable. It's not with that type of pressure. Like, if you don't act now, all sorts of bad things are going to happen. God doesn't threaten like that, especially when we're His kids. Well, the prophet isn't done with Ahab because God's not done with Ahab, and so God wants to help Ahab beyond this battle. God, in fact, wants to help Ahab for the rest of Ahab's life if the man will just trust him. So verse 22 says, And the prophet came to the king of Israel and said unto him, Go, strengthen yourself, and mark, and see what you do, for at the return of the year the king of Syria will come up against you. The prophet tells Ahab, he says, listen. He goes, I'm leaving. He goes, but you, you got, here's your instructions for the rest of the year. Because the king of Syria is coming back this time next year. He'll invade again. Go means get busy. You need to get moving. Mark means you must know this. See means you must become aware. Three commands he gets from God. You know, I, I love this because it's like, man, that's not complicated instructions. Get to work, know what's going on, and be aware of what the Lord's doing. This victory you've had, Ahab, doesn't mean you can slack off or that your conflict with the king of Syria is over. All of your energy needs to be spent prepping for that, that we depend wholly upon the Lord. That that's true is never an excuse to be indolent. You know, it's never an excuse to just kind of sit back and be like, oh, well, God's got this. Fulfilling our God-given responsibilities well and working hard to improve at them is something the Bible praises consistently talks about the, the wisdom of hard work, the wisdom of growing and bettering yourself. Ahab's still going to need to depend upon the Lord when Syria attacks next, but Ahab needs to be a good king in the meantime, not a lazy king, not a self-indulgent king. You've got work to do. It's a busy year. Get ready because the king of Syria is coming back. I love what Pastor Chuck Smith used to say to us all the time. He said, do your best and commit the rest. It's a simple truth, but it's such an important truth. Do your best and then commit the rest to the Lord. You can't do more than that. Well, verse 23, and the servants of the king of Syria said unto him, their gods are the god of the hills, and therefore they were stronger than we. But let us fight against them in the plain, and surely we shall be stronger than they. And do this thing, take the kings away, every man out of his place, and put captains in their spots. And number you an army like the army that you have lost, horse for horse and chariot for chariot, and we'll fight them in the plain, and surely we will be stronger than they are. And he, the king of Syria, Ben-Hadad, he hearkened under their voice and did so. It's kind of sad that idolatry was so widespread in Israel that Israel was known as having many gods. That the king of Syria says, their gods, not their God. It does beg the question, what would others say I'm devoted to? Like if someone were to describe my spirituality or spiritual life or religious life or whatever, what would they say? What would others say I worship? Well, they said their gods are gods of the hills. Samaria and, and most of Israel's fortified cities were in hilly regions. The reason you put them on a hill is because it's harder to get to. If you're climbing up the hill when you're attacking, you're at a disadvantage. You can do all sorts of nasty things to people who are climbing up a hill to keep yourself safe. So the Syrians say, it's fascinating to me, they knew their loss was supernatural, right? They looked at the numbers and they said, you know, there's only one way a force of 7,000 guys could defeat our coalition. It was supernatural. We fought them on their God's terms in the hills. We need to fight them in the plain, in, in, the, in the valley, and then, then we'll win. Their gods aren't a god of the gods of the valley. <laughs> that was the science back then. That's the science back then. The word science means with knowledge. That's how they observed and understood things to be back then. Deities were more powerful in their realms of influence. So if you took on those deities' followers in those realms of influence, that was a documented problem. A no-no. 
So their advice is we were arrogant in how we approached this last time. We didn't look at the science. If we're smarter, we can win this time. I was reading all sorts of articles this week on the trustworthiness of science. I don't think there's people that don't trust laws of nature. <laughs> I think the problem is, is that there are a lot of people out there who don't trust individuals who claim to speak, and I'm going to use the word ex, ex cathedra, <laughs> you know, like in, with infallibility, because they're scientists or because they've done a study. One of the articles I was reading about was talking about, they're like, why is there so much doubt in the community? And one of the things, it's funny, there were two takes on it. One they were saying is, well, because we're probably publishing too much material too quickly, and, which I wholeheartedly agree with that. The other side was, well, no, we just need to get the material out there even more quickly without it being, <laughs> so weird to hear human beings say this, without it being fully verified and, and vetted. And that way, you know, it just, the more information's out there and, and people just kind of go with it. I'm just like, yeah, okay, that, that's, that's not manipulative at all. You wonder why people doubt you. You know, we, all of us have life experience to some degree and so we use our anecdotal evidence to say, well, things are this way. That's not the best way to do things. But the problem is, is, just because you have a title or a degree or you work in a certain position or you have a certain position in society, it doesn't mean you're not affected by that either. My biggest problem with any authority figure is well, you're a person. You're a fallible human being. You're not Jesus. And so it's not that I don't, I don't trust nature or facts. I'm not that at all. I just... I know it's easy, I know it's easy to look at information or my own experience and to determine what truth is based on that. And the problem with that is sometimes we want a desired outcome. There's nothing wrong with making a hypothesis and saying, well, I think this is the case, but you need to be willing to throw out all your hard work when you discover it's not correct. I tell you, one of the most disappointing things for me at times is when I go through the week and I'm all excited about a sermon. I'm like, this is so cool. I'm, and I think this is what's going on here. And then you start getting around Thursday and you're like, I think I'm wrong. And you're like, but I've got like seven pages of notes. It's a great sermon. But it's not what the Bible says, Will. But I really like the sermon. But it's not what the Bible says, Will. I've got to throw it all out. Can I keep a couple sentences? No. It's tainted by you throw it out and start over. I'm limited on time. That's when the Lord just goes quiet, you know. <laughs> just throw it out. It's always better that way. Fight him in the plain. Chariots, of course, would also be less effective in hilly regions, but would be deadly in open ground. Israel was never known for the, having a strong cavalry. The Syrians were, so this is their advantage. They said, surely, <laughs> surely we'll, we'll win this time. Verse 25, surely we shall be stronger than they. There's no way we won't be if we do it this way. And then they had one other thing they wanted to do. They said, take the kings out of the way. They don't know how to fight. You don't need them to be there. Put captains, people loyal to you, people you know will do everything that you say. The size and makeup of our army was not the problem last time. It was the battle location and the fact that you didn't have men who were 100% yours leading the way. So, do everything exactly the same, but with those two changes, and we can't fail this time. And Ben-Hadad agrees, and he prepares to invade Israel a second time. And so in verse 26, we start Syria Bowl 2. And it came to pass at the return of the year that Ben-Hadad numbered the Syrians and went up to Aphek to fight against Israel. And the children of Israel were numbered and were all present and went against them. And the children of Israel pitched before them like two little flocks of kids, goats, but the Syrians filled the land, the country. Aphek was a city on the Golan Heights, a few miles east of the southern end of the Sea of Galilee, where the Jordan River meets with the Yarmouk River in the Jordan Valley. A good area for chariots to fight. And so they take the city of Aphek. We're going to see that later. They capture that city, and then they go down into the plain and say, if you want your city back, you're going to fight us down here. And so Israel goes out, their army is numbered as well, and then it mentions here they were all present. That's a, a really misleading uh, translation. The, the phrase means 
All their needs were provided for. Everything was present that they needed. In other words, guess what Ahab's been doing for the last year? He's doing what God told him to do. Getting all the supply lines ready, getting the army ready, getting everything ready. Now, even though he did everything God told him to do, he didn't waste any time this year. Even though that was the case, he was still heavily outnumbered. He listened to the prophet, though, and he did everything he could do. And so we see that God shows up again, verse 28. It says, and there came a man of God, probably the same prophet, we don't know for sure, but there came a man of God and spoke unto the king of Israel and said, thus says the Lord, because the Syrians have said the Lord is God of the hills, but he is not God of the valleys, therefore will I deliver all this great multitude into your hand, and you shall know that I am the Lord. A couple things to point out here. God says he's going to do this not because Ahab's so good, but so that Ahab would know the difference between Jehovah, who is real, and the idols who aren't real. This is how Ahab understood gods to be. I mean, he's a ball worshiper. I mean, that's, he's an idolater. This is how he understands the same wisdom and, and documented information that the Syrians had kind of was the way that Ahab thought about God. It's why he agreed to the whole thing up on Mount Carmel. But the Lord says, I want you to see I'm different. I want you to know that I'm the Lord. God is doing so very much to reach this man, isn't he? What has God done to reach you? And are you responding to him? Or what about those around you? Have you ever asked them if they see the mercy and love God has shown to them? I hear, it's funny, you can get two different responses from people in very similar situations. I'll be here at church and I'll say, how you doing? And I'll say, well, you know what? Praise the Lord, I woke up this morning. And you talk to somebody else, not a believer, you know, like in a work environment or your neighbor or something like that. Hey, how you doing, man? Well, I woke up this morning. I mean, God should do a, be a little bit better than that, shouldn't he? You know, Mr. Pastor? You know, what, you know, you know why would God let me go through all these troubles? Similar situations, but very different attitudes. Have you ever asked them if they see the mercy and the love that God has shown to them? I personally think we tend to be far too bold about things we shouldn't be and not the things we should be about. So I encourage you, be bold about the Lord's love and the Lord's grace, amen? Be bold about that. Tell people, man, look at what God's doing, how he's taking care of you. Don't be shy about that. Verse 29, and they pitched one over against the other for seven days. I got stuck on that. Like I thought, well, if you're gonna fight, why are you waiting seven days? Like, why are you just staring at each other for seven days? I'm curious what the Syrians were waiting for. Doesn't mention negotiations. Bible doesn't say what they, they just stared at each other for seven days. I don't know. Nobody else did either because I couldn't find any commentaries that mentioned it. So I don't know. If you ask me, you've got to figure it out on your own. But it says it was in the seventh day that the battle was joined. And the children of Israel slew of the Syrians 100,000 footmen in one day. I was looking at some of the bloodiest battles in the history of the world, and most of the time we can't know numbers for sure because we don't have. Certainly there are battles where more men than this were killed in, in a short period of time, but this is a pretty bloody battle. This is a pretty heavy slaughter here. A lot of men lose their lives in this battle. And so it says the rest of them, verse 30 fled to Aphek into the city. And then it says, and there a wall fell upon 27,000 of the men that were left. And so Ben-Hadad fled and came into the city into an inner chamber. The invading force from Syria, the coalition, they had captured this city prior to the battle. And they planned to go inside and make their stand from within its protection. But then when they get inside, it says the wall fell, which means the not a wall, but literally the city wall. So the entire city wall, I don't know what Aphek looked like back then. We don't have a good archeological dig on this city. So I don't know what it looked like back then, but whatever the city wall was, it collapsed. And so any troops that were on the wall, which was basically the remaining force left, 27,000 of them were killed. Now, this is not the first time we've seen a wall collapse in battle for Israel. This is what happened when Israel laid siege to the city of Jericho. But the writer doesn't 
say that this was like a supernatural thing or God did this. He doesn't mention anything. He just says the wall collapsed. So it's possible this happened due to some type of siege tactic that Israel employed. It's possible that God did do something supernatural and knock the walls down again. But I guess we'll have to wait until we get to heaven to know for sure. That is quite a lot of men on an, the city wall of a minor city. So I don't know how you fit that many men there, but it's, it's possible it's not just 27,000 men were on the wall. It's possible they were in, within sight of the wall and, you know, where they could be harmed. So the idea being is they were defending the city and this wall collapsed and it basically killed the rest of the army. And so this wipes out Syria's remaining forces and Ben-Hadad flees deeper into the city and he hides, it says here in verse 30, in an inner chamber, which means a private residence. He just found a house and he and his servants hid there, his surviving officials. But of course, that's a, that's a short-term solution. You're not, you're not getting out of that city without, without getting discovered. They're going to get discovered at some point. So Ben-Hadad's officials advise him to surrender, verse 31. And his servants said unto him, Behold, now we have heard that the kings of the house of Israel are merciful kings. Let us, I pray you, put sackcloth on our loins and ropes upon our heads, and we'll go out to the king of Israel. Peradventure, he will save your life. So Ben-Hadad's not going out to surrender. These guys are going to leave the private residence, go out to the city, and find the king of Israel and plead for mercy. I think it's fascinating to me that they say, we've heard that the kings of the house of Israel are merciful. The word there, merciful, it's that word for God's love for us, chesed. We've, we've heard that they have loyal devotion, that they, they are commit, when they make a commitment, they keep it. Syria and the nation of Israel had bonds in the past. Um, and so he's saying, listen, we've had treaties in the past. We've had relationship that was good in the past. We've heard they keep their word. Perhaps if we humble ourselves and appeal to Ahab, he'll remember his side of the commitment and he'll spare you. And so the king says, go for it. So they girded sackcloth on their loins. Wearing sackcloth is where you turned animal skin. You would make animal skin for, for clothes, but you would put the furry, uncomfortable part on the outside. But if your sackcloth is where the furry, uncomfortable part was on the inside, the prickly part. And so the idea is, is when you would wear that, it was a sign of repentance or mourning. So they put on sackcloth that say, listen, this is, this is us declaring that, that we were wrong to invade. They put ropes around their head, but, I mean, your neck's also a part of your head. They probably didn't just tie rope on their head. They probably put ropes around their neck because hanging was one of the ways that you would execute an enemy official back then. So the idea is they're coming out with saying we're repentant, we were wrong to invade, and they're showing we know we deserve death for this, and we're putting ourselves in your power. We've already tied the rope around our neck. So we're basically casting ourselves upon your mercy. And so they girded sackcloth their loins, put ropes on their heads, and came to the king of Israel and said, your servant Ben-Hadad says, I pray you, let me live. And Ahab says, is he yet alive? He is my brother. The plan works. Ahab sees these guys, and his first question is, is he still alive? Uh, the walls collapse. I mean, had had to have been devastating to kill all those soldiers. However it worked, it had to have been devastating for all those soldiers to be killed. So when, when it happened, Ahab assumes that Ben-Hadad had also been killed. And th but then he says this. He goes, is he still alive? He's my brother. I don't think I want a brother like Ben-Hadad. That's an odd response from a man who's been invaded twice and told that his city would be razed to the ground the first time. But these officials, they were watching for Ahab's response, and when he says, he is my brother, they latch onto that wording as a good sign. Verse 33, now the men did diligently observe whether anything would come from him, and they did hastily catch it. And so they said, your brother, Ben-Hadad. Yeah, yeah, he's your brother. Then he said, go you and bring him. So then Ben-Hadad came forth to him, and he caused him to come up into the chariot. And Ben-Hadad said unto him, Ahab, the cities which my father took from your father I will restore. And you shall make streets for you in Damascus, as my father made in Samaria. And then said Ahab, I will send you away with this covenant. So he made a covenant with him, and he sent him away. These guys, most of the time, your political advisors were usually priests or spiritual individuals as well. So when it says that they did diligently observe, it literally means they were looking for some omen or sign. 
And so when Ahab says, you know, he's my brother, it's just they hastily catch that. It means they, they quickly accept that, that he's being sincere. This is the sign we were looking for. He's sincere about this. And so they said, oh, yeah, yeah, he's alive, he, and he's your brother, all right. So Ben-Hadad says, please, go get him for me. Bring him. And so when Ben-Hadad comes forth to meet Ahab, Ahab says, get in my chariot. You don't need to be down there. You need to be up here with me. And so by doing this, Ahab treats Ben-Hadad like an equal, not someone who's been conquered. Now, it's easy to read this and go, Ahab, you're not smart. Lest you think Ahab's a fool, he's not a political fool. He's just a spiritual one. He's just watched God deliver his severely outnumbered troops twice in the span of a year. But the reason he does this is because he's still worried about Assyria. Remember back in the beginning of the chapter when Ahab agreed to Ben-Hadad's initial terms of surrender? He says, all your gold's mine, all your silver's mine, your wives and your kids, they're mine. And Ahab goes, it's all yours, bro. You're my Lord, I'll be your vassal. I'm good with this. Ahab was worried about Assyria as well. And so he says, I I want this alliance. And if these are the terms, I'll take them rather than lose a bunch of, of the lives of my people today. Ahab was not opposed to a treaty with Syria. In fact, he wants a treaty because he's just as concerned about Assyria as Ben-Hadad was. And so what Ahab is thinking, I'll use the Lord as long as he's helping me out, but I still need to take care of myself as it concerns this Assyria problem. This is the part of me when I read it that I just want to shake Ahab. (laughs) But then there's the other part of me when I think about doing that that knows I've done the same exact thing. God gets me out of the bind I'm currently in, but then I start worrying about the bigger future problem, and I lean on my own understanding there, even though trusting the Lord here worked, (laughs) right? It's, It's how we often are. All God has done for me is to be good and gracious and faithful. He deserves my trust. That's something I constantly remind myself of. Will, why are you sweating this so much? Like when the fact that you're here right now sweating about this is evidence that God has gotten you through all the other things that you were sweating through. So why? Why are you acting like this? Trust the Lord. He deserves it. And on top of that, this is a logical fallacy. Why would I think a bigger impossibility for me is more dangerous than a smaller impossibility for me? Syria was an impossible problem for Ahab. Okay? All right. Well, Assyria is a bigger impossible problem, but since they're both impossible, why are you giving more weight to one than the other? We can be so proud, can't we? (laughs) We can be so faithless at times. Nothing is a challenge to the Lord. You know, we think, oh, Lord, you got me through this, but I don't know how you're going to get me through this. What do you mean? You know, I have to constantly do that. I'm like David. Like, okay, I'm not like David. I have a long way to go to get like David. David talks to himself a lot. He'll say to me, I said to my soul, soul, (laughs) you know, and that's how I work. I'll be sitting down on the porch of my Bible. You know, I'm glad my neighbors don't think, well, they might think I'm crazy. They just don't tell me they think it. I'll say, I'll say, Will, what are you thinking? Like, think of this, 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 and this. You know, I think sometimes you need to give yourself that, that truth pep talk. Like, remember this, remember this, remember this, remember this. David would say, soul, why are you downcast? Why are you so upset? What's going on? Hope thou in God, for he is yet the health of my countenance. He's yet the reason I'm still here. And therefore, he'll be the reason I'm still here after this trial. In Psalm 46, we read it in our scripture reading and It was so encouraging to me as I was reading it recently. Oh, wow, it's 7.55. Okay, read Psalm 46 in your own time. It's really, really good. Really good. But I'll leave you with this thought from it at the end. Not the end of the sermon yet, but the end of Psalm 46. He says, Come behold the works of the Lord, verse 8, what desolations he has made in the earth. He makes wars to see uh, unto the end of the earth. He breaks the bow. He cuts the spear in in, in sunder. He burns the chariot in fire. And then my response is, be still. He says to me, be still. This is what God does. Look at, behold what God does. Behold the works of the Lord. 
and then be still and know that he's God. He's the Lord of hosts. Well, Ahab gets his covenant, gets a street named after him in Damascus. It's a good thing. But none of that could have compared to the Lord being on his side. And so because of Ahab's repeated resistance to the Lord, as exemplified here, the Lord pronounces judgment on him. Verse 35. And a certain man of the sons of the prophets said unto his neighbor, in the word of the Lord, smite me, I pray you. And the man refused to smite him. Then he said unto him, because you have not obeyed the voice of the Lord, behold, as soon as you are departed from me, a lion shall slay you. And as soon as he was departed from him, a lion found him and slew him. That doesn't need any explanation, right? Let's move on. This guy's a graduate from the school of the prophets, so he's different than this other man of God who had been working with Ahab on these two wars, these two battles. But it does tell us that by God's instruction, he says to this guy, punch me in the face or hit me in the face. And the guy refused. No. Now, I sympathize with that because if someone walked up to me and said, God told me to tell you to punch me in the face, I'm not going to punch them in the face. But this is a bit different because the word refused here, it's not just that he said no. It literally means to be in a state of rebellion or to be defiant to an authority. In other words, he's not just being polite or questioning if God would ask him to do such a weird thing. He's defiantly refusing to obey the Lord. He knows it's the Lord, and he's defiantly refusing to obey him. And so if someone tells you to punch them in Jesus' name, you better do it. (laughs) Otherwise, you're going to end up dead. Surely that's not the point the writer's trying to convey. No matter how much abusive leaders like to use a text like this to frighten their followers into doing what they tell them to do. The writer's point is that defying God's authority and rebelling against God's word is bad decision-making, just like Ahab's bad decision-making. And you know, when we think about the audience that the writer is writing to, the exiles in Babylon were there for the same reasons, bad decision-making. And so the reason that the writer includes this situation here is he said, instead of being like this guy and like Ahab, and instead of perpetuating perpetuating your exile, Turn back to the Lord and submit to his word like this next guy does. So verse 37, then he found another man and said, smite me, I pray you. And that man smote him, so in smiting he wounded him. Good job. You bruised me pretty bad. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm never signing up for the get punched in the face for a good sermon illustration ministry. Sorry. But someone has to. On a more serious note, sometimes God does allow us to be bruised so that our lives can communicate an important truth to others. He does. There's no sign-up sheet for that either. God picks our ministry for us. Just ask Job. Job didn't sign up for that. It's our job to trust the Lord and yield to his plan, knowing that by allowing us to be bruised, it will affect more people for his kingdom if we do. Let's wrap this up. It says, So the prophet departed, and he waited for the king by the way, and he disguised himself with ashes upon his face, And the king, as the king passed by, he cried unto the king, and he said, your servant went out into the middle of the battle, and behold, a man turned aside, and he brought a man unto me and said, guard this man. If by any means he's missing, then shall your life be for his, or else you shall pay a talent of silver. That's 75 pounds of silver. That's more than most people would be able to come up with. So if you lose this Syrian prisoner, basically he's saying, I I I fought for you, king. I was in the middle of the battle. Look at my bruises. It's proof I was in in the fight. And some other Israeli soldiers came to me and said, it's your job to to guard this Syrian prisoner. But he says, as your servant was busy here and there, he was gone. The prisoner escaped. And the king of Israel said to him, so shall your judgment be yourself. You have decided it. This guy's requesting clemency, basically, you know, give me a pardon, king. But Ahab coldly denies it. You let a prisoner of war escape, man. You're a bad soldier. You're getting what you deserve. But then verse 41, by the way, another king said similar words when a prophet confronted him. Remember David with the lamb? That man should die. Oh, you're the man. Same situation here. As he hasted and he hasted and took the ashes away from his face and the king of Israel recognized him that he was of the prophet's. And he, the prophet, said unto Ahab, Thus says the Lord, 
Because you let go out of your hand a man whom I appointed to utter destruction. Therefore, your life shall go for his life and your people for his people. The word utter destruction there, it's the same word that God used to describe the plunder in Jericho. He said, the whole city's devoted to me. It's, it's, it's devoted to the ban is what utter destruction means. No one else is to touch it. It's all mine. In other words, at some point God had told Ahab that Ben-Hadad's fate was God's to decide, not Ahab's. And so because Ahab decided to take matters in his own hands, he touched something that didn't belong to him. Therefore, he's going to experience the same judgment he pronounced. Now, we do have to ask the question, okay, well, what's the difference between Ahab and David, though? I mean, was David executed? No. But here's why. When David was confronted by Nathan, he confessed his sin, humbled himself, and repented. But look at Ahab's response to God exposing his disobedience, verse 43. And the king of Israel went to his house, heavy and displeased, and came to Samaria. The word heavy means stubborn, resentful, sulky, bad-tempered. And then displeased means angry and raging. How dare the Lord tell me what to do? I'm the king. I've got things I'm worried about. Doesn't the Lord care about that? Doesn't he care about Assyria? Yes, Ahab, he does. He cares about you enough to rescue you from certain doom twice, even though you didn't deserve it. You see, the difference between David and Ahab isn't that one sinned and one didn't. The difference is that one recognized who was God and one didn't. Ahab wants God to serve him. And as long as the Lord does that, Ahab's fine with going along with God's instructions. But the minute God demands something from Ahab that Ahab doesn't think is best, or Ahab doesn't want to do, or Ahab doesn't think will work in his interests, he disobeys. And then he gets angry and resentful when the Lord calls him out on it. God is indeed our refuge and our strength. He's a very present help in time of trouble, just like he was to Ahab here. But when you read that psalm, it also says he's the Lord of hosts. My proper response at all times is to be still and recognize that he is God, that he is the exalted one, not me. Have you done that? Are you okay with that? Let's all stand. Lord, you're so good. Like, I read this and it's so encouraging to me. I don't want to be like Ahab, but Lord, at the same time I look at this and I think of your great love, how you just keep reaching out to this man. He's never too far for you to reach out. So Lord, we, unlike Ahab tonight, we want to recognize that you are the Lord of hosts. Lord, you're our refuge and our strength and a very present help when we're in trouble but you're also the Lord of hosts. And so we choose, Lord, tonight, maybe there's something going on in our life tonight, we choose to be still and know that you're God. In Jesus' name, amen.